Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 through chapter 6, verse 7. Uh, if you'd like to stand, um, we often do that in honor of the reading of God's word in this service. If you can, if you're not able to, that's fine as well. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 is where I'm going to begin reading. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, and its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. The people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. Father, we ask for your help today. God, open our eyes to see clearly to the majesty and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to embrace the new life that you have given us in Christ. Help us, Father, to live by faith and obedience. Stir our hearts to follow you this morning. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if I were going to sum up for you uh, the book of Joshua and how it transitions to our life, I, I would say it this way. So the book of Joshua is about God's people possessing the land, the life. How about this? The new life that God has provided and promised. Okay? So the book of Joshua is about God's people possessing the new life that God has provided and promised. And that would be a pretty accurate picture of the book of Joshua. Now, the reason that I, I like to summarize it that way is because when you go into your New Testament, you find some of the same imagery. You know, you find Jesus saying in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly, right? Jesus basically says, Jesus, remember Jesus and Joshua are the same name, two different languages, Hebrew and Greek, all right? So, so Jesus, the new Joshua, is saying, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. We find the Apostle Paul saying things like in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. In other words, there, there's new life in Jesus Christ. And so I like those pictures because when I, when I think about studying the book of Joshua and studying how, how God led the Israelites into the promised land, I think about how God is leading us into new life and how those two kind of work together. 
All right, so a little bit of review. We've been doing this every week. I always say I'm going to shorten it, and then I never do, so I don't know. Sorry. Uh, it's just hard. So, so God promises Abraham, way back in Genesis, he promises, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a new land, the promised land. And through your family is going to come one who's going to save the world, who's going to bless the world, bless every family on the face of the earth. Abraham believes him. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those 12 sons is Joseph, who gets uh, sold into slavery into Egypt. Joseph rescues the whole family during a time of great famine. And the children of Israel are in Egypt for 430 years. That actually, that number is from Isaac down. But anyway, 430 years of captivity is, is the way the Bible describes that. Then God raises up Moses uh, as a deliverer. Moses goes into Egypt, delivers the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They're on the way to the promised land. They get to the promised land. They don't believe God. They won't trust that God will do what he said he would do. God said, I'll give you this land. They get there. They look at it. They're like, they got fortified cities. They've got armies. We can't do it. And they don't trust God, that entire generation wanders in the wilderness for 40 years until they all die off. And now Moses is dead. Everybody's dead except Joshua and Caleb. And now there's a whole new generation. All their children are now ready again to go into the, into the promised land. In Joshua chapter 1, we find God preparing Joshua for this, preparing him for this leading the Israelites into the promised land. We find him saying, look, you need to get across the Jordan River. Take that step of faith. We find him saying, look, you need to meditate on my word day and night. That's how you're going to have prosperity. And then in chapter 2, last week, we saw, we marveled, did we not? We marveled at the grace and mercy of God and that he reaches into Jericho, a city devoted to destruction. Every inhabitant in it is going to come into the wrath of God. And we find God plucking a prostitute, a career prostitute, who simply has faith in him. And God brings her out of Jericho through the spies, saves her family. Not only does that, God just always goes over abundance, doesn't he? He puts her in the line of the Messiah. She becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David and the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Now, in chapter 3, we find them crossing the Jordan, which is really kind of a way of saying there's no turning back, right? Remember, God stops the Jordan River at flood stage. They go across on dry land. After they get across, you know what happens? The river starts flowing again. You know what that means? There's no retreat. The manna stops flowing from heaven. Another sign that, okay, there's no going back. You're gonna, you're, you can't go back to the wilderness. You've taken this step of faith. Now it's time to go forward into the promised land. That brings us to chapter 5. In chapter 5, Joshua, I kind of picture him at night. I, I don't know how, how you picture it happening, but, but I kind of picture him at night looking over the city of Jericho, thinking about how they're going to capture this fortified city, when all of a sudden he sees in front of him a man with a sword drawn. I'm going to make the case to you this morning that that man was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, okay? Now, you're like, pre-incarnate, what in the world does that mean? Let me explain that, okay? So if we go over to our God story here, we see that right here is called the incarnation. Remember this Christmas story? Bethlehem, God becoming man in the form of a baby born to Mary, a virgin, the Virgin Mary. Okay, that, that is called the incarnation. So the incarnation is a way of describing that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. But let me ask you this. Did Jesus exist before Bethlehem? Absolutely. He's eternal, right? Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus is God 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one trinity. So Jesus has always existed. And so we see glimpses of him in your Old Testament. And this, I would argue to you, is one of those glimpses. Now, that's really significant to me because when, when, when God told Joshua, God told Joshua, he said, I'm, I'm going to ask you, this was chapter one, I'm going to ask you to do some really hard things, Joshua, but I'm going to be with you. Remember, he said that to him twice. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Isn't that cool that when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, he told us we're going to do some hard things. He said, all right, disciples, you're going to go and you're going to make disciples of all nations and you're going to teach them to obey all that I've commanded and... Remember, lo, I'm with you always. See, whenever God asks you to do some really hard things, he always says, but I'll be with you. I'll be with you. He told Joshua that in Joshua chapter 1. I think we are seeing the reality of that here in Joshua chapter 5. And, and you know what? If Joshua was anything like Moses, he, wasn't gonna, he, wasn't gonna, he was not going to take his foot into, into the promised land until he knew God was with him. In fact, in, in Exodus 33, there's this interesting passage where, where God finally has had enough of, of Israel's disobedience. And he says, Moses, I'm just going to send you, but I'm not going to go. And you remember what Moses says? He said, if you're not going, I'm not going. You know, I, I won't go without you, God. Well, I think that's the way Joshua feels. And so I believe that Jesus appears to Joshua here as the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, I know what some of you are going to say. You're going to say, well, how can you prove that that is Jesus? Well, I don't know that I can prove it, but I think I can come pretty close, okay? So some of you might just say, well, that, that's just an angel. Um, okay, okay. And, and I, like, I have no serious problem with that. But if it is an angel, there's a couple things that are interesting to me about this, all right? So here's why I think it's Jesus. First of all, he says he is the commander of the army of the Lord, so that would fit with Jesus, okay? But second of all, when, when he reveals himself as the commander of the army of the Lord, look at what happens. In uh, verse uh, 14, it says, uh, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and, what's it say? Worshipped. Now, other places in the Bible, whenever someone worships an angel, you know what the angel does? He says, stop, Right? That happens in the book of Revelation, you know. The angel's like, whoa, 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 don't, don't, don't worship me. You know, there's only one you worship, and that's God. Well, in this case, Joshua falls on his face and worships, and the commander of the Lord's army doesn't tell him not to. Then the real kicker is, in verse 15, the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. There's an... Another place that the Bible describes that very scenario, and it is in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. Remember that? And in that burning bush, the bush is burning and it doesn't burn up, and Moses draws near, and the first thing that God says to him from the bush is, do not come near, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And then God goes on in that chapter to reveal himself as the great I am. So I would make the case to you that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is Jesus revealing himself in the form of a soldier, the form of a man with a drawn sword to Joshua. Now, when I say that, I think some of you are going to say, okay, I don't picture Jesus that way. Right? Is that the way you picture Jesus as as a man with a uh, a drawn a warrior with a drawn sword? In fact, I I wonder how you pictured Jesus. Let, let me throw some things out. I bet you when when I say you know what picture of Jesus do you have in your mind? 
I bet one of the following comes to your mind. How about, how about Jesus as the shepherd of the sheep? Anybody have that one in their mind? You know, where, where Jesus has the lamb in his arms. And indeed, John 10, 10, what's it say? He, or not John 10, 10, but John 10. It says he is the great shepherd, right? Or how about this one? Jesus with the little children on his lap. I mean, that's a great picture right out of the Gospels, isn't it? Where Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Or how about this one? Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, I think we got a picture around the church here of that somewhere, you know, where a picture of Jesus in the garden, he's praying, the moon's coming down on him, he's wrestling with the cross, or, or how about that? How about the picture of, of Jesus on the cross, or the picture of Jesus coming out of the tomb with the, the stone rolled away, or Jesus preaching to the multitudes, or, or how about this one, with all the disciples in the upper room breaking bread, that's a famous one, one of those those real arty guys did that one, right, Da Vinci, or uh, one of those guys, Not I don't know, who, Michael, in, I don't know, I'm not. I should know that. I'll ask Addy at lunch, right? Anyway, somebody famous did that one. Um, Jesus touching the eyes of the blind or, or, or Jesus, right? Th- those are the pictures probably of Jesus that you have. But, but I wonder, do you struggle with the picture of Jesus as a warrior with a drawn sword? It's not an unbiblical one, actually, okay? So, in, in fact, we, we, we know that Jesus actually does have an army, So in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, as he's dying on the cross, do you know what he said? He he, he says, do you not know that I, if I wanted to, could call, I think he said 12 legions of angels. Now, in the Bible, whenever someone sees one angel, what happens? They, They fall on their face as though dead normally, right? I mean, that's normally what happens. You know, they kind of come apart. They fall apart. They think they're going to die at the vision of one angel. And Jesus says he could, at any command, immediately call to his side 12,000 of those beings. So obviously, he does command an army. In fact, in, Matthew, in, in Revelation chapter 19, uh, at the end, we see this picture of the Lord Jesus. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. My friends, that is a clear picture of the coming Lord Jesus. You're going to see that one. Uh, every, every knee is going to every, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess, and every eye is going to see the Lord Jesus coming in victory. That's one we're all going to see. And what I would tell you this morning is that is the same Jesus as you find calling the children to Himself to put Him on His lap. That is the same Jesus that in Mark chapter five, I believe it is, He goes into the bedroom of a little girl who has died with her parents. And he stoops down and he whispers into her ear, Talitha Kum, little girl arise. And his voice reaches down into death and draws that little girl to life. And then she sits up and Jesus says to her parents, hey, get this little girl something to eat. She's hungry. That's the same Jesus. 
The thing that we want to avoid is anytime we see Jesus in a place of judgment, a place of dealing with sin, to dismiss that. I think that's what a lot of people do. A lot of people will, 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 will say, my Jesus does this or that. Okay, anytime anybody says my Jesus, I just, I, you know, I, it may be okay what they're saying, but I cringe a little bit, you know, because Jesus is who the Bible says he is, not who you want him to be. And, and so we should not, we should not say, well, well, my Jesus doesn't do this or doesn't do that or he doesn't care about that or he's not judgmental. I heard somebody say that this week. My Jesus is not judgmental. I said, have you read Revelation 19, okay? Because he's coming and he's got a sword. He's going to slay the nations, all right? And I believe that Joshua chapter 5 is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ with a sword drawn ready to bring judgment upon the city of Jericho. Now, now here's, here's something so these next couple of chapters of Joshua are tough, okay? Um, I, I can't tell you how many people have brought these up to me, um, kind of struggling with it. Because what's going to happen, and we'll deal more with this next week, is that Joshua is going to go into Jericho, and Jericho is a city devoted to destruction, which means that every living thing in it is going to die. It's going to come under the wrath of God, except for Rahab and her family, who had the scarlet cord out the window. Picture the gospel. And... and, and a lot of folks are going to struggle with that picture of Jesus and his wrath against sin. Now, I'm, we're not going to spend the rest of time talking about that, but I want to spend a little bit of time giving you a few things to think of before we hit that again next week, okay? So here, here's some things for you to think about that I think help us put that into perspective. Number one is that we understand from our theology here at Lincoln Avenue that the wages of sin is death. Do we not understand that? Isn't that interesting that a lot of times we memorize that verse and we affirm that verse in our own salvation, but yet when it comes down to really believing that my sin brings death, I think we struggle with that. But the Bible is very clear. Romans 3.23 says that all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Literally what that means is my sin brings death. My transgression against God brings death. Not only physical death, but eternal death. Eternal separation from God under His wrath. And, and that's been the case the whole Bible. In fact, if you open up your Bible, the very beginning of mankind, in Genesis chapter 3, God puts man and woman in the Garden of Eden in a paradise and says, you can eat of any tree in this garden except for this one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat of it, you will, you'll die. I mean, God said, transgressing against me, not trusting me, not believing me, worshiping something other than me will bring death. It'll bring wrath. It'll bring separation from God, which is essentially hell. It is the place where God is not. And so the wages of sin bring death now something else that people will struggle with is it just seems like god comes in here and and and, and with sword drawn jesus and in joshua chapter 5 joshua chapter 6 the wall of jericho come down and everybody's destroyed it's like whoa god what that just seems a little rash a little harsh well in genesis chapter 15 when god is promising abraham the promised land here's what he says in Genesis 15, 16, he says, And they, speaking of Abraham's descendants, shall come back here. Come back. He's in the promised land when he, when, he, when he says this. They'll come back here in the fourth generation. 
For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So in other words, 430 years prior to Joshua going into Jericho and destroying everyone, 430 years before that, God said, these folks' sin is under my wrath. These folks are living idolatry. They're they're singing against me. They're rejecting me. And my wrath is going to come. Okay, now, did, did you hear how many years there? 430 years before that takes place. Now, now one of the things the Bible always says about God is he is slow to anger. He's really unlike us, okay? When, 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 someone, when someone hurts you, when someone sins against you, how long, how long of a period of time is it before you want justice? For most of us, it's not 430 years. It's 4.3 seconds, okay? That's the truth. You know it's the truth. Okay? I mean, we we all feel that way. When someone transgresses against us, we want immediate judgment. And I, I would tell you this morning, it's very clear, God is not like us at all. God tarried with the Amorites and the Canaanites for 430 years in their sin. What kind of sin was that? Well, We know it was idolatry. We know that it was the worship of Baal. It was the worship of Tanit and of Asherah. This really became real to me when I visited North Africa because in Jeremiah chapter 7, it talks about, again, the prophet condemning Israel's intermingling with the people of the land and their idolatry. And he says in verse 18, The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. The queen of heaven is the goddess Tanit. Okay? Now later in that passage, in just a few verses later, in verse 31, it says, They built high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it even come into my mind. Now that became real, real to me when I visited North Africa and we were able to walk through an archaeological dig it's really amazing in North Africa, like, there's nobody even there checking. I mean, you just do whatever, you touch whatever you want, you walk wherever, you explore whatever you want. But what was already unearthed was hundreds, I've got pictures of this, hundreds of these little gravestones with either Baal's picture inscribed on it or Tanit's, the Queen of Heaven. Now, Tanit's picture is always this woman with her hands outstretched like this. In fact, if you, if you go into North Africa... It's really the strangest thing I've ever seen. But the tourism symbol for North Africa is Tanit. Uh, the people do not understand what happened there. But in their own city there, there's an archaeological dig. Guess what they found in that archaeological dig with the goddess Tanit and the god Baal? They found 20,000 remains, skeletal remains of children, all of them around the age of two months. Now, I guess you could speculate, well, it was a graveyard for children. All at two months, huh? No, as they begin to... And you can go to Wikipedia, look up Tanit. You can, you can read this. They, they've discovered that it was a place of child sacrifice. Exactly what was happening in Jeremiah chapter 7 that God says, I'm coming in and judging what was what had been happening all through Canaan, even down into North Africa with these idolatrous practices. 
is they would heat up the arms of this goddess, this metal image, and then they would place their children to be burned alive to the goddess. Now, when I read things like that, and when I understand that that's what idolatry brings, then I think, I think we should understand that God is a God who will judge sin. Not just that sin, but our sin. In fact, God is a God who sent His own Son to do what? Was it to, uh, to get chewed out for our sins? Take a real verbal lashing? Was it to uh, be scolded, spanked? You know the gospel. God sent His Son to die. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Jesus died in your place that you might not have to. So when we see the image of Jesus with a sword about to come in and bring judgment on the city of Jericho, that should not be a strange image. And it should not be one that we have any trouble meshing with the rest of the images of Jesus that we see. Because God is all of that. He is a God of endless mercy. He is a God who in Joshua chapter 2 reaches into Jericho and pulls out a career prostitute in her family to not only save them, but put them in the line of the Messiah. And he's also the God who will bring justice upon sin, either in hell or in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the conversation between Joshua and the commander of the Lord's army. All right, so a man with a, standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua goes to him and says, Are you for us? Or for our adversaries. Now Joshua gives two choices here. And neither one of them is right. Okay. He gives a multiple choice uh, question. And it's not a multiple choice answer. Because Jesus answers. The commander of the Lord's army answers. No. In other words. I am neither one of those. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. In other words. What Joshua wanted to know is. Are you going to help us? Or are you going to help them? Are you on our side? Or are you on their side? When the reality is. Jesus is on his own side. He's for his own glory, right? And, and we, should not, we should not approach him saying, are you going to help me with my plans? That's a mistake. We make the same mistake that Joshua did here all the time. And that is this one. We think, okay, God, I got this plan. I got this plan for my life. I've got this plan for my family. I've got this plan for my time. Man, I'll tell you what, Americans are the best at that. We say, God, this is what we're going to do with our life. This is what we're going to do with our time. This is what we're going to do with our weekends. This is what we're going to do with our evenings. This is what we're going to do with our mornings. This is what I want to do. God, would you get behind it and bless it? And that's what Joshua was saying. Hey, I'm going here. Are you, are you on my side? Jesus says, no, neither. I, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, are you going to get on my side? The reason that's so important for us to understand is that we can have the best intentions, friends. We can have the absolute best intentions and our plans be wrong, broken, okay? 
we were on vacation a couple weeks ago, and uh, it, it's a difficult thing for me as the dad, as the planner of the vacation, to try to find things that are fun for children ages 24 to 2, okay? So, like, that, that's, that's kind of a hard mesh, you know, to find something that's fun for everybody. And so I'm, I'm always planning. I'm always planning, trying to plan out what is the, the best idea for us. We were driving through the mountains. We were headed to Mesa Verde, and we came through Burgosa Springs about mid-afternoon. I thought, you know what would be fun? I'd been thinking about this. It'd be fun to do a little tubing, you know? That's a, that's a real popular deal in Pagosa Springs. They, they tube the Animus River. I think it's the Animus River. But they, they tube it. They, an outfitter, there's a whole bunch of them. They'll take you about a mile or two upstream, and then you float right down downtown Pagosa, and that's where you can, you know, get off the river, right in downtown, and you're right there with your car. I mean, it's a cool thing. We go in, and, and we, we, we look at the, the flow chart for what the level's at, and it is just a bit above what Haven really should be handled, you know? And, oh, you should have seen her face, just like, Dad, you're playing. You know, there. So downcast, and, and so I make a new plan, all right? So my new plan is I'm going to send everybody else but Haven and Colt and me, send them with the outfitter. They're going to go upstream. They're going to, you know, put in up there a couple miles, and they'll float down, all right, down downtown Bogosa, and they'll get off, and we'll be waiting for them there. And in the meantime, I rented one tube just for us, and my plan was, I'll set Haven up, up river, and then Colt and I will go down river about 100 yards or so. I'll yell at her, okay, get in, and she'll just do little bitty trips, you know, just these little, you know, a couple hundred yards. And so, so you know, Colt and I, we get down there, and I set Haven in a certain spot by the rocks where I said, don't get in until I tell you, and we, we make our way all the way down the river, and we get in the water there about this deep or so, and I'm like, okay, get in. And, you know, she gets in, and, man, right away, it's faster than I thought it was going to be, you know. She's trucking down through the little little rapids and everything and right as she's starting to get close to us the current takes her to the other side clear to the far side I mean just whoo just you know I, I'm try, I can't get to her and so immediately I begin to make new plans all right if I can get to the vehicle get back on the highway down to Durango I can get down the bridge there you know and catch her then you know I, I don't like I'm trying I'm thinking that's a terrible plan my, my fa- rest of my family's coming this way here she's going down the river so immediately I make another plan I'm gonna tell her to jump off the tube you know but then I start thinking we rented that tube we got to bring it back I can't just let it go so my third plan is jump off the tube and hold on to it right she does what I'm thankful for kids that obey. This is why you need first-time obedience with your kids. It's because there's certain situations they need to do what you tell them to immediately, you know. I say, jump off the tube and hold on to it. She jumps off the tube and holds on to it, but she, she's too small. She can't pull herself out of the room. Now, she got a life jacket on, so she's, she's still up, you know, in the water and everything, but it's still taking her downstream. And I got cold, you know. God was merciful. This high school kid, he's probably 50, he's over with his buddies. He sees my distress. He jumps in, grabs her, brings her over to the edge. And new plan, we're going to sit in the little hot tub area until everybody else gets back. <laughs> then I put Haddon in the middle of that river. And then, then we did our plan. And Haven came down and he caught her. And, you know, it was all good, okay? Here's the point of my story. I had nothing but good intentions for my family. I wanted to... Give them, show them a fun time. I wanted everybody to be able to have a good time together. My plan was bad. I almost had a kid, you know, headed into the Grand Canyon, you know, in a day or so. Would you believe that there are many times where you and I have the wrong plan? Good intention, 
Good intention. But we, you know why we have the wrong plan? Because it's not Jesus' plan. You for us or for them? Neither. Take your shoes off. Bow down. And listen. And then you know what, jo- you know what Joshua hears? Joshua hears the commander of the Lord's army. Here's the plan, Joshua. You get on board with this plan. You're going you're gonna to march around the city six days. On the seventh day, seven times. You're going to do my plan. Now, what happens next is really important, okay? I'm skipping a whole section of the sermon here just because it didn't work. I couldn't get it in there at 830, so I've, I've skipped it every, every service. So, so we're not going to talk about the actual battle. We're going to save that for next week. But here's what the interesting thing is. Most of the work for Joshua actually comes before the battle. So God gives him the plan, but you know, you know what you know what Joshua really needs to do? He needs to get himself and the people ready to be a part of God's plan. All right? So Joshua 3:5. This is my memory verse for this next week, by the way. I decided that this morning. I was early this morning. I thought, I'm going to memorize that. But it's a short verse. It just says this. Joshua 3:5 says, "Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you." All right? That's a great verse. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, God is about to do something incredible. That's his plan. Now, you get your life ready so you can be a part of that. That's what consecrate. Consecrate means to set something aside for special use. All right? And so, so, so God is saying, set your lives apart for the wonderful thing I'm about to do. So you know what happens? That's in chapter 3. So in, in chapter uh, 4, they cross the Jordan. Okay, just like they're supposed to. Remember, they're supposed to take that step of faith. No turning back. They do that. In chapter 5, you know what God says? He says, okay, now you need to circumcise all the males. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been reading through this, I, immediately I thought, hadn't they supposed to already done that? They, they, they were, right? When they came out of Egypt, they did it with that last generation. But then you know what happened? They just neglected to do what they were supposed to do. That ever happened in your life? You just kind of neglect to do what you're supposed to be doing? And they hadn't. And so all the males are circumcised. It's interesting if you read through that. We don't have time, but at the end of, after they, after they and remember, circumcision is a sign of the covenant. It's basically a sign that, that we, are, we have a covenant relationship with God. We are his people. He is our God. That's, that's kind of the, the sign of circumcision. And after that, Joshua tells them, okay, now the reproach of Egypt is rolled off of you. What do they do right after they circumcise all the males? Um, chapter 5, verse 10. They celebrate the Passover. Remember when they came out of Egypt, the, 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 the death angel was coming. Unless they killed the Passover lamb, put the blood above their doorposts, everybody inside. They celebrate that. It's, it's why we celebrate communion. Why we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus for our sins. So essentially they appropriate the gospel so so what are they doing here they are getting themselves ready for god's plan in second timothy there's this neat little parable second timothy 220 says in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver but also wood and clay some for honorable use some for dishonorable therefore if anyone listen cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, 
set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You know what that verse is essentially saying? Consecrate yourself, for the Lord is about to do wondrous things among you. That's what it's saying. It's saying in your house you have fine china and then you got things like the dog dish, right? You use those for different things, I hope. Don't, don't you? Probably, yeah. Right? And, and, and what 2 Timothy is saying is, man, you should, you should set yourself apart. You should consecrate yourself. What does that mean? It means if there's things that you ought to be doing and you know you ought to be doing and you're not, get that right. That's, it's like circumcision for them. If there's things you need to stop doing, then you, should, you need to get that right. It's a way of saying, okay, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ready myself for God's plan. Man, God's plan is the best plan. You know, it, it doesn't always make sense. We'll talk about this a little bit next week. It, it doesn't always make sense. You know, taking a city by marching around it and blowing trumpets and shouting, that's unconventional. You know, that's not in any of the military strategy books. But God's plan is the one that takes down the walls. God's plan is the one that takes down the obstacles between you and the life that God has promised and purchased and possessed, provided for you. So let's consecrate ourselves. Let's, let's trust that God has the right plan. Let's listen to what his plan is. And then let's step out and be ready to be a part of that. Father in heaven, I thank you for giving us this opportunity to look at your word. And Jesus, we, we submit ourselves to you. We worship you this morning. You are the God of grace and mercy and love and the God of justice and holiness and righteousness. You are all of that in perfect, in perfect unity. Father, we know that sin brings death. So God, we, we put our sins on Jesus, our Passover lamb, and we turn away from our sins, and we repent. And God, we set ourselves apart to make ourselves ready for the good things that you want to do. Help us to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please?